our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that this world is under thy government, that thou hast established thy kingdom in our midst and in our hearts, that thou hast spoken through thy word concerning the things that are to come, and hast given us thy sure and certain promise that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Bless us by thy word and by thy spirit, that we may move in terms of thy victory and the blessed assurance of thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text today is from the Gospel according to St. Luke, the 19th chapter, verses 28 following, and our subject, the procession of the Holy Ghost. The procession of the Holy Ghost. Luke 19 verses 28 through 48. When he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives. He sent to his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a coast tide, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the coat, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the coat? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the coat, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy feast, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that fought. 
saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him, and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Today is Palm Sunday, the day of the celebration of the triumphal entry of our Lord into Jerusalem. Our subject today is the procession of the Holy Ghost, an article of the Nicene Creed. What is the connection between the two subjects? The connection is a very necessary one, and we cannot understand the doctrine involved in the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday unless we understand the doctrine of the procession of the Holy Ghost. The doctrine of our Lord's entry can be lost sight of and is extensively in our day and age lost sight of. It is treated as a memorable historical event which we are to commemorate. Certainly, it is a memorable historic occasion. But Caesar crossed the Rubicon and ultimately entered Rome. And what is that to us? Apart from being an important historical event, it means nothing to us individually, personally, spiritually. It has nothing to do with your salvation and mine. triumphal entry in Jerusalem can be reduced to the same situation, an historical event of note happening to a man who was very important in history and no more. The significance of the triumphal entry hinges on the doctrine of the procession of the Holy Ghost. First of all, let us examine the meaning of the triumphal entry. It is the triumphal entry even though our Lord went there to be crucified, even though Jerusalem rejected him, because he was not the victim but the victor. Moreover, as he entered Jerusalem, he proclaimed himself to be king the messianic king of the Old Testament prophecies, king over Israel and king over all nations and the universe. And the throng recognized that which he declared and proclaimed him to be king, declaring, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He was therefore plainly, openly proclaimed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in terms of prophecy. But this was not all. 
Our Lord not only declared himself to be king by the way he entered in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, he also declared himself to be God, very God of very God. He entered into the temple, and we are told that he cleansed it, declaring, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations which ye have made it a den of thieves. My house. He called the house of God my house, openly identifying himself as God. Is it any wonder that in the charges against him, the Pharisees declared that he made himself to be God? He therefore proclaimed himself as he entered Jerusalem to be very God of very God and king not only over Israel and the world but over the universe. He also pronounced sentence upon Jerusalem and Judea so that he declared that if he were not accepted as savior he was their judge that all men and nations to the end of time without exception either accepted him as their Lord and Savior, their King and God, or they faced him as their judge who sentenced them to damnation. Now this doctrine was offensive to the ancient world. Antiquity was humanistic. Every man had his own way of getting to God. And to them, acceptable religion, reasonable religion, was religion which said, you go your way and I'll go mine and we'll all get there in the end. And here was Jesus Christ and the religion of Scripture, the preaching of the gospel openly, plainly declaring there is none other name by, under heaven by which men may be saved than Jesus Christ. And so the humanists began to work to subvert this, to wipe out the exclusiveness, the offense of Christianity, the offense of the cross, and to make this a religion which left room for everyone and which was basically humanistic. Now we have seen how the Aryans very early began to subvert the faith by reducing Jesus Christ to a kind of superhuman man, a superman, but one like unto us and we are all potentially like him but definitely not God, and declaring that God, God the Father, was really not very different from what we call nature. He was not a person. He was a silent God, incapable of expressing himself or speaking because he was just the force of nature. Now, Arianism pretended to be Christianity, and as it approached the doctrine of the Trinity, it subordinated the Son and the Holy Ghost to the Father, 
made the Father one with nature, and whenever it talked about the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost was simply the act of nature, the force of nature in motion, and the Son was, in effect, the Superman that nature had produced. Arianism, subordinationism, the humanism of the day, thus declared that God the Father was the only true God, and he was in effect no different than nature. It was Unitarianism, it was humanism. As a result, it treated the revealed order, the revelation of God the Word and his unscriptured word, the Bible, as either meaningless or having a lesser status and just being at best a kind of addition to the revelation which nature is. This was their perspective. As a result, since nature was the real order and nature was God, that which nature produced, the state, was man's saving order. And so statism was being reestablished very steadily in and through Arians. Now one of the things the Arians definitely worked against was the verses in the Gospel of John, 14th chapter, 16 through 18, verses 26 and 27, which speak of the procession of the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son. Jesus Christ declaring that he will send unto them a comforter, the Holy Spirit, declaring that he comes from the Father and he comes also from him, the Son, so that in these verses the procession of the Holy Ghost from both the Father and the Son is definitely affirmed. What did this doctrine mean? This doctrine meant that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, and that neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit can be made into aspects of nature, but that Jesus Christ is the revelation of the triune God who is above and over nature, the creator of all things visible and invisible. And therefore, holy and totally supernatural, above and beyond and over nature. And that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, equally God with the Father and the Spirit, is man's only Savior and man's ultimate judge. The doctrine of the procession of the Holy Ghost, therefore, preserved the significance of the triumphal entry of Christ's procession into Jerusalem and his declaration that he was God and King, Lord and Savior, Judge over the nations. The Arians depreciated Christ because they depreciated revelation. 
They wanted the natural order as the true order, the decisive order, and the state as man's savior. For the Aryans, God at best was simply the first cause, but basically nature. And for them, the determination of history was transferred from God to man, so that man was his own savior, and man in the state, the real God of the universe. The Arians, therefore, went to work on both the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Holy Ghost. The Augustinians recognized what was being done. And so in the councils of Toledo, first at the second council of Toledo at 447, they adopted the canon, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Paraclete not begotten, but proceeding from the Father and the Son. And at the next council of Toledo in 589, they added that clause which is now a part of the Nicene Creed concerning the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. This was added at the Council of Toledo in 589 when the Orthodox believers gained the victory over the Arians. And this clause was added to seal the victory over the Arians, over the humanists, who until then had governed in both church and state in all of Spain. at a council of various churches including the old Catholic Church in Germany and the Orthodox churches as well this doctrine and a prominent Anglican theologian of the day declared the doctrine of the procession of the Holy Ghost is a theological relic. It will no longer divide the East and the West. The East did not accept this doctrine as it was pronounced at Toledo. And the East very quickly declined theologically. And the East saw the rise of statism so that areas were Eastern Orthodoxy, the Greek Orthodox Church, and the Russian Orthodox Church prevailed, saw the rise of statism and the decline of the church. And if you examine the doctrine of Christ, for example, in Russian Orthodox literature, you find that they have the doctrine of kenosis, in which Christ is seen as emptied of all his powers, of all his deity, and he's a meek, humble person who is totally submissive, who sits under the power of the state, and the church must do likewise. 
and he is neither the Savior nor the judge, but just a harmless, charitable, good fellow who goes about sympathizing with the poor and the downtrodden. But now, we are told, this doctrine no longer divides us. And what has happened since 1875 when this doctrine was slighted? We have seen God again become identified with nature, and evolution widely accepted in virtually every church in the East and the West. We have seen the significance of on Sunday slighted and Christ as Lord and Savior, God, King, and Judge, slighted and forgotten. And instead, social action stressed, and the state as man's Savior presented to the church. The church, as a result, has turned steadily towards Unitarianism, God as nature, the state as the true and the saving order, evolution instead of creationism, and the deity of Christ progressively denied. The Palm Sunday means the triumph of Christ to the end of time and for all eternity. It means that he is present today because the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, proceedeth from the Father and the Son. And the procession of the Holy Ghost is a reality. He is the comforter, whom Christ sends to his church to strengthen, defend, and witness to it and in and through it. He is present now in the Holy Spirit in the hearts of all believers to strengthen them and to comfort them. And he is present to unbelievers to condemn them and to give them in all things a troubled conscience and in the end to sentence them to everlasting damnation. Palm Sunday is not to be compared with Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon. Both are events in history. But the one is an event also in the soul of every man. And the procession of the Holy Ghost makes Palm Sunday an inescapable reality to every man to the end of time. Christ declares himself, and men either receive him as their Savior or face him as their judge. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Jesus Christ's triumphal entry, not only into Jerusalem, 
that by thy grace into our hearts. We thank thee that he has come, that he has established his dominion in us, and that we are now thy people, separated unto thee, and that all thy promises unto us in Jesus Christ are yea and amen. pray our Father that this day and always we may move in the certainty of his triumphal procession knowing that it is thy purpose O Lord that all things be put under his feet that the kingdoms of this world are to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and that of the increase of his government there shall be no end. Make us bold in this faith, our Father, and confident therein, and ever faithful in thy service. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. In the 
early councils, there were three patriarchates that were regarded as equal in significance and in rank, and were so treated, and the council declared them to be of equal status. They were the Patriarchate of Alexandria, Constantinople, and, as the term was then used, Old Rome. So that these three were of equal rank, and there was no question as to the preeminence of any one of them. The equality of the bishops was accepted, so that while these three had a primacy, it was a primacy not in terms of authority, but in terms of eminence, of honor. And the council specifically stated in some of their canons repeatedly this fact. Now, it was not until after the year 1000 that Hildebrand, when he became Pope, proclaimed the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. But prior to that time, some of the popes actually declared that such a doctrine was anathema to them. There was a hint of this in uh, Galatius, in his teaching, but it never came to the front until Hildebrand. Now, in the early councils, the basic theological leadership was in Alexandria. So, we have to say that Alexandria showed the primacy theologically up uh, to Chalcedon. At Chalcedon, the theological primacy went to Rome. Ireland. 
the Church of Ireland, which was an independent church, exercised tremendous power and did the basic evangelism in uh, much of France, the northern and central sections, and in Germany and elsewhere, and its closest relations were with the Syrian church. And in many of the graveyards of the Irish monks, some of the gravestones are in Syriac. But the Irish church was a tremendously important church, and Ireland was the center of the time of world culture. Now, the Irish culture, uh, and it has never regained its eminence, or comparable culture, or comparable prosperity. The Irish culture was destroyed by the politicians of Ireland. They were always conflicting one with another, and there was never anything but turmoil between them. And so they invited the various, various quarreling Irish factions, the Danes and other of the Scandinavian uh, warriors, who were at that time, as you know, rather wild people, in as their allies. Well, these various uh, Scandinavians came in and uh, decided it was a good place, and why leave? So they began to establish their domain there and loot and kill. And so Ireland very quickly was destroyed. Now subsequently the Church of Ireland was united. And it was the Church of Ireland, by the way, that carried the uh, gospel into Scotland and into much of England. Although it had come into England first during the time of the Roman Empire and Roman possessions there. And then it gradually gone on as uh, the Romans withdrew. But uh, when the churches of England and Ireland were united with Rome, a uh, sizable portion remained their independence so that into the uh, high middle and almost late Middle Ages, you had two archbishops in Ireland, the archbishop in Dublin appointed from Rome and then the Archbishop of uh, oh does anyone name remember the name of the ancient uh, Irish center at any rate there were two seas uh, what no that's from England oh it's one of the Yes, I know the one you mean, but that isn't the place. That was one of the important centers of the bishops of Ireland. At any rate, it's one of the most hallowed names in Irish history. And there was also a great center of the Irish church, the continuing Irish church in Wales. Yes, and it became such a tremendous center of uh, monastic learning, and uh, the number of saints in that century are staggering. 
people of tremendous scholarship and culture. The illuminated manuscripts, uh, the greatest of the illuminated manuscripts are from Ireland and Armenia. And a few years ago, some of the Irish manuscripts were put under a magnifying glass, and the number of brush strokes in a square inch uh, were close to a thousand. Now, how uh, they could take the painstaking time and the uh, sharpness of their eyes they could, that they could have uh, uh, copied these Bibles with such loving care and such beauty is almost beyond belief. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, of all these great people, have their libraries been preserved? And how many people? No. Has anything, do we have any data? No. Because I'm sure the filming, as you, as you talk about these people, they must have been very learned men. It's a cumulative time in the library and manuscripts and gone back and researched uh, the terms of Christianity before them. Yes. Well, we have man uh, some manuscripts, but basically no. They've been scattered or destroyed. People like Have any of their belongings been preserved? Very little. Very, very little. Yes. Yes. Um. Did the the work of Isabella has been extensively bypassed. Her work in Spain was very, very important, both politically and religiously. Why, I don't know. In the last century, there was a great deal of interest in her in this country, interestingly enough. But since then, Isabella has been very, very badly neglected. Her work was important. In the remaining time, I'd like to call attention to some things from the newspaper in the last week. Not very pleasant, but I think something we need to recognize is the ugly reality that is taking over in the church. From the Wall Street Journal for Monday, March the 13th, on the front page, a long story, Tenderline Ministry, a secularized church pursues its mission in unorthodox causes. San Francisco homosexuals helped by Glide Methodist, some members unhappy. And it goes on to speak about Bride Methodist Church, one of the wealthiest churches and most powerful in California. And uh, I'm quoting, Bride's ministers are especially concerned about homosexuality. It is widespread in San Francisco. Police estimate that 80 to 90,000 San Franciscans or more than 10% of the city's 790,000 people are homosexuals. Glide permitted the vanguards, a group of young male prostitutes, to have a dance in the church. Glide also has made office space available to the vanguards, helped them secure a club room, and bought them furniture, and so on. Glide ministers haven't tried to reform the homosexuals, and so on. 
and it describes some of their activities that they sponsor and uh, they have uh, also established uh, an agency called Citizens Alert a group that maintains a 24-hour answering service to help people arrested by police and of course their cry perpetually is police brutality and discrimination against uh, homosexuals and so on uh, and it goes on along this line however this article is not an unfriendly one and the concluding paragraph reads Glide's activities have intrigued many clergymen and religious laymen around the country Two writers for a Methodist magazine recently spent some time at Glide doing a series of articles. We have seen the growing edge of Christianity they jubilantly reported back to their editor. Now, to get a more candid account of uh, Glide Church, this from a far, far leftist periodical, the Berkeley Barb, for Friday, March the 3rd, on a recent uh, doing at uh, Glide Church. And the title is Hippie Happy Hour Makes Glide Glow. The Glide Memorial Church is like most churches, quiet, respectable, fastidiously neat. It waits primly for its Sunday morning congregation and the inspiration of subdued words and music. But not always last Friday night into that stately stone building at the age of, edge of San Francisco's tenderloin, streamed the hip, the beat, the tuned in, and the dropped out. The sermon was, this is it, dig it now, and the mass was black. Before the cop crowed, the church fathers had lost their cool and ordered the orgiastic revelers from what they had felt would be a haven of hedonism. Sponsored by the Artists' Liberation Front, the happening had been dubbed the Invisible Circus. But fully visible for the peripatetic voyeur were such sights as a naked man moving easily around the main sanctuary, a score of belly dancers, some topless, passion requited within the recesses of a small chapel and for the straight plastic stag movies. The church leaders had felt that it would be a good way to bring together all sectors of the community from hip to square to help lay the groundwork for the mutual understanding needed as the different camps became more polarized. It was, but what happened to their courage? Now you see this is from the left, this paper, so it's criticizing them. The scene got underway at 8 p.m. with a rock band in the downstairs fellowship room. About 50 people of the large audience danced to the big notes. In a small room next door, some people got ready for bed in a two-foot-thick carpet of shredded plastic. The church elevator was filled with plastic, too. It was quickly commandeered by elated Illinois. They ascended and descended and stopped between floors with satanic leaves singing Yellow Submarine. Upstairs in the main sanctuary of the church, some of the older Haight-Ashbury uh, folk led in the chanting of Hindu mantras. In another room, there was a discussion on obscenity in the arts. Reverend Stuart uh, Guide and a police representative were on the panel. A chair was kept open for anyone who wanted to give an opinion. 
One man said that if there were really such a thing as obscenity, then the Vietnam War was the most obscene thing of all. By 10 p.m., the sanctuary of the church had been transformed into a panorama of waving candles, gliding costume bodies, birds of paradise flowers. Clouds of incense wavered from hundreds of glowing sticks. Notes of flutes, rams, and seaweed horns and drums blended with the church's organ and piano. Projectors flashed swirling colors on the walls. Behind the altar, the long, graceful cross was bathed in dancing purples and reds as a gigantic face of Christ flashed on and off. A procession started around the banks of pews, each participant holding a candle moving slowly in the undulating line. Soon there were two lines moving in opposite directions. Processioners exchanged candles as they passed, their faces glowing in the warm, intimate light. The format in the fellowship room had changed by now to a variety and talent show. Admission to the room was via a booth where Lenora Candle was reading fortunes by examining the lines on the bottom of people's feet. In another downstairs room, the communication company mimeographed bulletins about the happening as it evolved, posting copies outside the door. One of them declared there will be a funeral for the carcasses of the flowers in the hallways. Attendance is mandatory if you wish. Come now. Destroy the adverse influence of the amateur show. Love them with dead flowers or anything else that you love with. Photos, line arts, rallying cries, and turn-on admonitions were also mimeographed and handed out to the crowd by little girls with sad Walter Keen eyes. At 11 p.m., the diggers fed several hundred people. The large crowd jammed its way slowly through the halls and in and out of the small rooms. Most were young people. There were a few drag queens and hell's angels and probably some narcs and other fuzz. But everyone seemed to belong there. There was a feeling of inclusiveness that embraced all styles. In the fellowship room, a film on space satellites and missiles was projected on a paper screen. The accompanying rock music got louder and stronger. Then 20 belly dancers burst through the screen and started undulating, drawing spectators onto the floor as partners. Some of them went topless as the dance progressed. Others, other couples joined the dance and there was a gentle touching among them as if they were cherishing the mutual intimacy of the dancing and the closeness. In the sanctuary, several poets read from their works, among them Leonard Candle and Michael McClure. Uh, Lenore Candle got into trouble because of her pornography recently. Then the scene took over again, and soon the characteristic scent of pop suffused the incense haze. Several African drums started their pulsing beat in one corner. Soon many were dancing to the insistent throb, some of the belly dancers among them. Around the altar, loud voices projected selections from holy books. While couples kissed and caressed under the cross of Jesus, a completely naked man moved around the larger room. He belonged like everyone else. In a room downstairs, a sex film was shown, and the grooviness of the total happening, it was sensual, not pornographic. On the improvised beds in the other rooms, couples were seen sleeping, talking, loving freely. Still other rooms had discussions, recording sessions, improvised folk and rock music. By 4 a.m., the crowd had thinned out somewhat. Earlier during the night, some of the Glide officials threatened to stop the event if the church weren't cleaned up. There was an accumulation of flowers, incense sticks, cigarette butts, candle wax, coke cans, and other debris all over the sanctuary. In answer to an appeal from the author, the celebrants did a thorough job of cleaning away the debris. 
The church leaders did call a halt to the proceedings at dawn Saturday, well before the happening had been scheduled to end Sunday morning originally. Nobody was sure why. Fire regulations and candle damage to the carpet, some conjectured. They lost their cool, said others. The scene then shifted to Ocean Beach. There, warm wind spirits were cooled by the wind. A few hundred people gathered mainly around one roaring fire. Three Negroes played on one bongo drum and two overturned rusted barrels. The crowd stood, sat, and shivered and jumped to keep warm. At several smaller fires, people were collecting sticks to maintain the blade. Silence reigned except for occasional nostalgic comments on the wild time of glide. The crowd was quiet and vibrations were mixed. Some people had hitchhiked from Glide downtown, a stiff proposition at night. A few stood barefoot in the wet sand facing the ocean and let the cold water wash their feet. Now, I am told that when uh, officials of Glide were asked uh, about it and uh, why they had stopped it finally, their only excuse was that, well, more people came than they accepted, not that they were hostile to what happened. Now, I read this in detail because this, of course, while it is happening very openly at Glide, is happening in churches in every city across country. And this is the reality. The church today is taken over by humanism by and large, and this is the end result of humanism. There can be no law over man because man is his own law. Therefore, there must be the deliberate profanation of anything that represents the old faith, biblical Christianity. Yes. I, I think you were clicking a couple weeks ago about something young people in a church in Dan Ives were going to have, and I forgot now what it's called, but uh, would this be the beginning? So, of course, I know they weren't in any states like that, but um, can we in that direction? Is it let go? Yes, this is increasingly the kind of thing that is being sponsored. Now, it does occur in many, many communities and churches not far from us, but it is much more discreetly handled. In other words, it is not so openly done. Glide Memorial Church is taking the lead, like a few other churches, because Glide Memorial has tremendous endowed funds. It was, 30 years ago, one of the most ultra-conservative churches in the West. But it was infiltrated and taken over. The endowed funds now enable them to thumb their nose at any of the members who don't like it. The sad part is that there are lots of members still sticking around. Yes? Well, this demonstrates a point that I thought of many times as we go. So we've got the foundation. So this woman apparently gave all that money to drive in good intent and all that. Now it's degenerated in this. The same thing can be said of many other foundations. And uh, I just think this would be uh, good ammunition to use in doing away with foundations. Yes and no. First, foundations, when they were originally established, which goes back into the medieval period, had one purpose, and originally in this country until the beginning of this century, had one purpose. They were to be Christian through and through. 
they were to further Christian work, missionary work. The idea of foundations that uh, we have today is totally alien to the history of foundations. And it is a subversion of the whole idea of establishing a tax-exempt foundation. So that originally they were to do works of charity and missionary work or Christian education. Nothing else. Now, I agree with you that I do not believe basically in endowed funds, especially in this day and age, because the weakness of endowment is simply this. The minute you create any kind of endowment, a subversion takes place. And it is commonplace for people to work their way in, keep their silence for uh, a generation in order to lay, lay the groundwork for the takeover of a foundation so that I believe that any kind of Christian school or college or youth center or foundation that is now established should have as its principle that it is not going to accumulate funds. The money it gets is to be used now for the present cause. If uh, tomorrow money is needed, let those who are on the scene tomorrow raise the funds for tomorrow's work. Because if you accumulate it, you will be taken over. Well, that brings up the point of uh, separation of church and state and of their tax exempt. Well, uh, I mean, after all, it's a, uh, well, there's such things as macaroni factories. I've seen start and all that sort of thing. And uh, given the churches and the income off of that, well, as the foundations are today, they should not be tax-exempt. But basically, at, in its origins, the tax exemption of the foundation was the same as that of the church. It did not operate a business. It was maintaining a Christian work. And we do not believe that the ch church should be taxed because the church is not the domain of the state, it is the domain of Christ. It is a separate kingdom and therefore cannot be taxed because if you subject the church to taxation, you are subjecting it to total destruction. And this is why men like Blake and others are calling for the taxation of the church today. They want it to be confiscated ultimately. This is the only purpose of taxing the churches. Yes, well, of course, basically, nothing should be called a church that is not Christian. Because there is no such thing as a church, really, outside of Christianity. Now, what do you have in other religions? You have a temple. And what is the temple for? Well, the temple is a place where you buy insurance. Now, that's what it is, really. In the ancient pagan Roman temples or in a Buddhist temple or any such thing, 
what you do is to go in when you are going to go on a trip or your uh, family is facing some problem, someone undergoing surgery. What do you do? You pay a certain amount for protection from the spirits or powers that rule the universe, whoever they are. If you don't get the protection, you go to somewhere else with your business. And it's operated as a kind of insurance agency. Now that's what the temple was in antiquity. And that's what it is. And that's what religion is elsewhere. It's not a place of worship. It's a place where you buy insurance. So outside of the biblical tradition there is no such thing as a house of worship. The idea is alien to all other religions. So a church should be Christian by definition and nothing else. Judaism with its synagogue is related to the idea of the church and we do get the church out of the synagogue. It is descended from the synagogue rather than the temple. The temple was done away with permanently. Now, there can only be one legal basis for a state. You either have a humanistic foundation or you have a Judaistic foundation or a Christian foundation or a Confucian foundation. Every system of law is enacted morality. And every enacted morality represents a moral code which represents a theology, a religion. You can't have more than one religious foundation to a state. If you allow more than one, you're saying we are allowing subversives. It's the same principle as allowing communism full legal rights in a republic. So this is why basically a state cannot have either political or religious subversion. Going back from where we are today, how long has it been since we had one of these ecumenical councils like this help of the Yes. Well, the first six councils are the only ones universally acknowledged by every branch of Christendom. The seventh ecumenical council is acknowledged by uh, the Eastern churches and the Roman Catholic Church, but not by the Protestant churches. But the first six are the ones universally acknowledged. We have gone through the first five and we shall in a few weeks take the sixth and we shall consider some of the other creedal developments as well. Is it of that no. No, we've, we have the basic definition of the faith now. In fact, the first four councils really defined it. The fifth and sixth then proceeded to apply this against uh, various heresies. We have the faith very carefully defined. Now it's a question of an applying it and enforcing it against heresies. Well, our time is up and we stand dismissed. I'd like to just say those of you who are not getting the newsletter and would like to receive it, please uh, leave your name and address with uh, either Mr. or Mrs. Flanagan.